I'm going to use the example of Mary Magdalene, whom the early church called the apostle to the apostles. Christ chose to appear to her after his resurrection, and he told her, he commanded her, go and tell my disciples. If she had followed this verse in Paul, which wasn't written yet, granted, but if she had followed this verse in Paul, no one would ever have heard about the resurrection. She was the first yeah, evangelist. No, and if Christ wanted women to remain silent, why did he appear to a woman and tell her to preach the gospel to exactly. men, to his disciples? Exactly. Mm-hmm. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and I am here with my co-hosts for this series, Danielle. Say hello, Danielle. Hello. And Donald. Say hello, Donald. Hello. For those of you who are new to the show and don't yet know Danielle and Donald, Donald is a Pentecostal, fabulous feminist minister. And Danielle is a very smart lady. Well, thank you, Steve. Yes. yes. So we're getting a late start here. We've, we've all been kind of dragging ourselves out of bed. If you were to look at me, you'd think that I was up partying all night long. But no, I was actually just up doing laundry all night. <laughs> but we have coffee. And so we'll go ahead and get started. Today we're talking about the Danvers Statement. So we have already covered several items from the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is kind of the bastion of gender complementarianism. And so Matt Langston and I covered the Nashville Statement last year, which was a, the Nashville statement was basically just a big fuck you to the LGBT community. And then several weeks ago, uh, Donald and Danielle and I all covered the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's vision statement, and we broke that down. Well, now we're going on to the Danvers statement. The Danvers statement is basically their Christian statement on the roles of men and women, from what I understand. Now, I have not yet read it, and Donald and Danielle are definitely the more knowledgeable here in this group, and so I'm excited to learn about the Danvers Statement. Well, okay. Um, Okay. (laughs) So, I've pulled up the Danvers Statement. And uh, I think I'm just going to start in their own words. Yeah, so let's just just jump right in. This is the introduction on their website. In December 1987, the newly formed Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood met in Danvers, Massachusetts to compose the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Prior to the listing of the actual affirmations that comprise the Danvers Statement, we have included a section detailing contemporary developments that serve as the rationale for these affirmations. We offer this statement to the evangelical world, knowing that it will stimulate healthy discussion, boy will it, Mm -hmm. and hoping (laughs) that it will gain widespread assent, we'll see. We will see. (laughs) Well, you know, every now and again, this issue pops up. I mean, I'm sure to the non-Christian listeners, they're probably like, what in the world? What's yeah, the big Yeah, what deal? in the heck? And, mm-hmm. But ever so often, ever so many years, these things pop up yes. about 
role of women in ministry, about the role of women in the family. And so it's especially poignant right now with the hashtag Me Too campaign. Mm-hmm. With, Absolutely. Uh, and especially since those of us with a lot of that follow a lot of Christian leaders on Twitter, Twitter has been blowing up lately because John Piper, God bless him. Oh God, what did he do God this time? Bless his heart. Bless his heart. God love him. He has written an article about how he doesn't think there should be women professors in seminary. Jesus yeah. fucking yeah. Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm and, not surprised. Uh, and that right there is why we have an A rating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why. Uh, because... Yeah, no. So, yeah, for our non-Christian listeners who are wondering why the heck all of this matters, this affects the way evangelicals treat women within their own, you know, churches yes. and circles. But it also affects the way they fight the quote-unquote culture war. So if you're wondering why some of these sort of, I don't know... Dusty (laughs) organizations that seem out of touch and, you know, why the Mm -hmm. fuck do we care? This is why we care. Because they are willing to sort of put up with some honestly unbiblical policies because they they feel that certain leaders agree with them about these things yeah if that makes sense mm-hmm. i'm really glad that that the two of you brought that up because mm-hmm. you know i was going to kind of backtrack and explain this is why these ideas matter these ideas matter and, a lot <clears throat> and this mm-hmm. is why these ideas matter to the non-christian you know to american culture in general because evangelicalism is still a monolith mm-hmm. in sort of i mean they're they're a they're a large voting block they are a large voting way. block mm-hmm. and and they are still a hugely influential group and so ideas like this matter and i think it's important to to go to the source of them to these organizations that mm-hmm. that put out these statements and to and to break it down all right okay so, so i i think if, if y'all are okay with it, my plan of attack is going to be to simply read the rationales, like 1 through 10, the rationale, just read it through, and then we can go on to the affirmations. That sounds good. And actually discuss the affirmations a little more in depth, okay. if that's okay. So just read yeah. straight through. So bear in mind, yeah, this is why they have felt it necessary to define some of these theological points. So I will sit here quietly and drink my <laughs> coffee and not... And not explode? And not be a loud queen that and, and not derail it. Okay. Okay. So number one. The widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity, and they'll break that down more in the affirmations. Two, the tragic effects of this confusion about gender in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. Sorry, I can't help it. Three, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism with accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in scripture between the loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. Four, the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women. Five, the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships, which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. Six, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. Mm-hmm. Seven. And that's not funny. No, but it's physical funny. and emotional abuse is not funny. <clears throat> but we're laughing because... 
It's, it's ironic. It's, it's ironic. ironic. And we'll get into why later. <laughs> Seven, the emergence of roles for men and women in church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching, but backfire by the crippling of biblically faithful witness. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, Go back a little bit on that. In other words, women in leadership, that'll backfire because it does not conform to biblical teaching and therefore cripples a biblically faithful witness. Okay. Eight, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutical oddities devised to reinterpret apparently plain meanings of biblical texts. I really need to start like an indie rock Christian band called Hermeneutical Oddities? (laughs) Oh, that would be amazing. (laughs) Nine, the consequent threat to biblical authority as the clarity of scripture is jeopardized and the accessibility of its meaning to ordinary people is withdrawn into the restricted realm of technical ingenuity. Darn those seminarians. Right? And (laughs) ten, and behind all this, the apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age at the expense of winsome, radical, biblical authenticity, uh, which in the power of the Holy Spirit may reform rather than reflect our ailing culture. Okay, so there's a lot there. Yeah. Holy crap. Okay. All right, so uh, that that's a lot. Yeah, it is. And and so now we're going to start to give our blow-by-blow-by-blow blow blow response. Mm-hmm. With the the uh, the what what do they call it the the rationale the rationale behind okay. the affirmations all right because we haven't even gotten to the affirmations yet okay okay so this this has got to make it past the editing board we have for this special evangelical discussion we have propped our microphone on top of Strong's exhaustion. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> It's not intentional. It's mm-hmm. the first it's thing I grabbed book. off the shelf. Mm-hmm. It's such a big. It is. It's good thing, as a so. doorstop. Mm-hmm. It's good as a a bludgeon if someone breaks into the house. It's true. By the way, Danielle, I see that you are being a good feminist and drinking out of my uh, satanic temple coffee mug. It's true. Oh, was that complimentary? Was that no? It wasn't. I I ordered to the John. Yes. John purchased it to support the temple. So. Mm-hmm. So basically. What they're saying is, because according to this organization, the, uh, quote, current culture is confusing the roles of men and women and confused about, quote, biblical sexuality and uh, is confused about, you know, things like motherhood and gender complementarianism, that is eroding the biblical witness of Christianity, and that's why they then have to go on and give these affirmations. And, and the, I believe there are ten of them. And it's almost like it's mm-hmm. it's eroding the genetic information of the universe, and, right? And that's yeah, that's, that's how I like attitude. that's how I like to see this view of the world is that these traditions and and views are not they they are not actually just made by man and culturally confined but that they are actually an inherent part an intrinsic part of the fabric of the universe and so it's like they're part of the dna of the universe that men gruel over women that women submit to men that women cannot be ministers and and so on and mm-hmm. and I, these i'm i'm <clears throat> repeatedly fascinated by people who you know, during the Reformation, rejected the idea of papal authority 
now coming out and saying, well, my interpretation of the Bible is the only one anyone can listen to. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's that yeah. didn't didn't Martin Luther yeah. say, though, that that giving every man a Bible means that every man is his own pope. Essentially. And mm-hmm. that's what happens. Yeah. Though, that's the irony. Is that people become their own is little that popes and their own the Bible. Their own little infallible mm-hmm. their own little infallible ex cathedra <laughs> popes. Right? Yeah. But now that's not to say that giving everyone a Bible was a bad thing. It was a no, very good no, thing. It but thing. it's just the inevitable outcome. Mm-hmm. So the fundamental difference between complementarians and egalitarians is a fundamental worldview difference. This, like Stephen said, it's woke to complementarians, gender and patriarchy and that kind of thing are woven into the DNA by God. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. To an egalitarian the idea of patriarchy and this gender hierarchy is a result of sin, and therefore it is actually a sinful thing that Jesus corrected. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, as you can see, one person believes it's good, w- believes it's fundamentally good, and one camp, my camp, believes it's fundamentally right. evil. Mm-hmm. Now. I feel like something that we need to clarify and that we didn't necessarily clarify in the last episode or, or in the uh, mission statement episode is that we're not saying that men and women and that individuals can't complement one another. Of course not. You know. Yeah, no. And, and oh, so, no. you know, when we use the word complementarianism, there's a difference between that and complementary or, or complement, com, okay, there are two words, complementarianism. And complementary. And complementary. Those are two different ideas. Man, men and women, of course, are physically different. And I would also say psychologically different and socialized. Generally. 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 And not, and of course, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of spectrum there. So what we're not saying is that differences don't exist and that those differences don't complement one another. Mm -hmm. They can. They not always, but they can. And individuals do complement one another. What we're saying is that uh, complementarianism, which is the idea that there is this inherent subordinate uh, position of women towards men uh, and that that kind of complementarianism is wrong and evil and denigrating to women. And so, but but in criticizing that, we're not saying that men and women aren't different and don't complement one another. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And you know, and we it can't be ignored, especially given the the context of this podcast that both sides have not done a very good job of you know coming outside of the binary. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. because because they do work within this this very small frame of an understanding of what male and female is. And, you know, as I talked about with Matt Langston on the Nashville Statement series, you know, 90-something percent, I mean, the vast majority of people will fall into the broad categories of clearly male and clearly female. But then there is that twilight in between day and night. And it might be a smaller percentage, but within that sliver, there is this vast variety.
All right. Well, shall we move on now that we have the, all the caveats out of the way? <laughs> all of the uh, all of the all of the qualifications. Yes. Sure. Uh, all of those reasons were why the council felt it necessary to come up with these ten affirmations. The first affirmation: Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. And that, my friends, I agree with. So we're off to a good start. Okay,、yeah. mm-hmm. I have a feeling that this train is going to derail pretty quickly,、mm-hmm. though. Yeah, I think so. Okay, from that basic,、uh, from that basic starting point, and of course they they include scripture references here, and at, and on further points, I'm going to get into the nitty gritty. I do apologize、okay. of of some of these scriptural references, and we do also encourage everyone to go to the、mm-hmm. Danvers Statement at. The website for Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood dot org dot org、mm-hmm. and read it yep, and、okay. read it themselves. Yes, indeed. Do your own research. Yeah. So so far so good. Created as God in God's image, equal before God as persons, distinct in their manhood and womanhood. I would also argue more alike than they are distinct, because of course in the creation、yes. narrative, God is is you know creating all of these animals and Adam is naming them, but none of the animals are fit to be a companion for Adam because they are not similar enough to him. Exactly. God needs to create a being that is similar enough to Adam to be his companion and and help meet. According、yeah. to Dr. Brownson, who wrote Bible Gender Sexuality,、mm-hmm. uh, this seems to be the primary concern for the narrative. In these opening chapters of Genesis,、mm-hmm. is not the it's different, not their differences, it's not, their similarities, not the differences、yeah. between Adam and Eve,、uh-huh. not not how they are different and complement one another, but that the whole earth is full of beings that are too different from Adam,、mm-hmm. and so、mm-hmm. Adam goes <laughs> through the world looking for a partner, looking for a spouse,、mm-hmm. and you know he finds beavers and and hedgehogs and none <laughs> of them and, and giraffes and, and and none of them are、yeah. appropriate、nope. according to this myth. And and so the problem here is not the differences,、mm-hmm. but the but that there is not there isn't anyone similar enough to Adam. And so what the what the narrative seems to be suggesting is that the similarities between Adam and Eve are what are being highlighted are greater、yeah. are what are being、mm-hmm. highlighted. Okay, move on. Yeah. Well, really quickly, really quickly,、uh, a little、uh, a little Hebrew. Oh, good. I was going to go there,、here. but you're going there. So good. <laughs> awesome. Oh, okay. You know. This is one place where King James English is helpful because in the creation narrative, the King James uses the word "help meet," not "help mate," and there is a difference because the Hebrew word "there" is "azer," helper, which is the same word used for God Himself, Herself, God's self. So, in the Book of Psalms, where you hear things like. God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. It's the same word that is used to describe what Eve was to be to Adam. So, unless you want to say God is subordinate, yeah, you to can't、humans. say that because woman is called man's helpmeet that she is subordinate to man. That actually is addressed more specifically in a later in a later affirmation, but we've gotten there early.、Uh, so, I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, the word ezer, which is the word for help. Used when when it, Eve as is described as a helper suitable for Adam is used twenty one times in the Old Testament. It is only used twice to refer to Eve. It is used nineteen times to refer to God. So wow, you know, okay, good、mm-hmm. point.、Yes. Yeah, very good point. No, you can't you can't use that language of helper or helpmeet to say that Eve is therefore subordinate to Adam unless you're going to then say that God is subordinate to human beings. 
moreover, the language is, you know, Adam calls Eve bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The language used for flesh there is basar, which is also used to describe uh, relatives. So again, it's highlighting the similarities rather than the differences. You know, it's saying Adam and Eve have formed a kinship group and are the same, essentially, are part of the same group. They are human. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about broad kinship bond. Danielle, you are on fire, girl. You know, this this brings up a, a kind of a another tangential, sticky subject, which we don't have to get into right now, but it's the question of how literal and how mythical the story of Adam and Eve is, and what are the implications for that? Is it an archetypal myth, or is it literally true? And that spectrum from just myth to absolutely literally true also determines what we believe about ourselves as human beings. Although I would argue that you can, you could see this uh, as a literally true story and still affirm egal- an egalitarian view of, of men and women. I Me mean, too. I Me think too. that that is possible. I think it might be less likely, but I think it's certainly possible. I agree with that. Without sacrificing the authority of scripture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so on to the second affirmation. Yes. Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. Okay. And so uh, they support this idea with a lot of with a lot of scripture verses from the Old and New Testaments. And I'm trying to make my my phone cooperate to show me some of them. So let's see. Uh, yeah, no. In fact, this is this is the point at which they specifically reference Genesis two eighteen because it is it it was said before the fall. And it's the it's the verse that says, "Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will milk make him a helper suitable for him." Uh, and they're using that as evidence that therefore before the fall, Eve was subordinate to Adam, and we've we've already talked about that. So there we go. Awesome. <laughs> what they ignore is very shortly thereafter, God tells both Adam and Eve to rule over and subdue mm-hmm. the earth. Both of them. Both of them. In support of this idea uh, that the sub- that the subordination of woman- women is not a result of the fall, but existed before the fall, they quote First Corinthians eleven seven through nine. Uh, man not ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. But then they ignore the turn, right? So that was 7 through, well, 10. But then verse 11 says, nevertheless. And nevertheless is a word that comments back on what came before and says, yeah, I said that, but it's a but word. Uh, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman but everything comes from God. So in other words, you know, in the in the fallen order of creation, man would, you know, woman was created for man, not man for woman. And but then it goes on to say, nevertheless, in the Lord, neither is independent of the other. So I think I think that's an important an important distinction. I'm also going to bring up the fact that in the frenzy for biblical literalism, they also ignored verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Um, they do it all the time. The folks that, you know, would affirm the Danvers statement, I, I've 
been to churches that would consider themselves complementarianism and the women are not covering their heads. I guess my question is, why not? Why not? So can we, you know, this sort <clears throat> and, you know, this of is the, picking and choosing is, is just so interesting. This is yeah. kind of the inevitable pitfall of having an absolute literalist interpretation mm-hmm. of scripture. Yeah. Well, and let's also point out with a, a little bit of Danielle's story as, mm. a, as a Catholic, she's always been quite the, the feminist and the women's champion. And yet she, unlike these complementary <laughs> churches, I have seen her wear a, a scarf yes. to yeah. church yes, you before. Did used so, to wear, you did used to wear a I covering. did used to do that. And that's that's because God and I had an argument and God won. And that was that was for a season. And uh, and for a season, I did that as as an acknowledgement of God in obedience to that passage of scripture and not as a sign of submission to, you know, men. And not as an absolute law. No, and certainly not as an absolute law. That was that was a thing for a season because essentially because God convicted me to. I've had Orthodox women tell me the same thing that wear a scarf every time to divine liturgy. They said that we take that scripture and they say we should cover our heads because of the angels, because of God. We don't do it because Mm -hmm. of men. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We do it because God has asked us to. A head covering is no isn't a sign of submission to anybody but God. All right. Uh, so then the third reference that they put here is First Timothy 2, 11 through 14, which is, you know, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now that seems right? That seems pretty straightforward. The problem is that in the context of all of scripture, it's not normative. Like it's just not, it's not the pattern that scripture as a whole follows. It is an anomaly. Right here, I am going to quote one of my favorite Christian feminist authors, Rachel Held Evans, who says, It's hard to argue that Paul's statements here are meant to be universally applied when so many women from Scripture are honored by God and praised by their community for teaching and exercising leadership. Exactly. And that that is a pattern throughout Scripture, that women are given authority, um, that they are prophets and preachers and disciples and all these other things that the patriarchal culture of the time would certainly not have approved of. I'm going to use the example of Mary Magdalene, whom the early church called the apostle to the apostles. Christ chose to appear to her after his resurrection, and he told her, he commanded her, go and tell my disciples. If she had followed this verse in Paul, which wasn't written yet, granted, but if she had followed this verse in Paul, no one would ever have heard about the resurrection. She was the first evangelist. And if Christ wanted women to remain silent, why did he appear to a woman and tell her to preach the gospel to men, to his disciples? Exactly. Number four, the fall introduced distortions into the, into the relationships between men and women. Uh, and here, here they quote. We missed number three. 
Well, I think I think we addressed it anyway. The idea that Adam's headship in marriage yes, was established did. by God before the fall uh, and was not yeah, a we, result of sin. We did kind of yeah. tangentially yeah, address it that. It was okay. not. Okay. So. okay. Uh, no worries. Number yeah. four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationships between men and women. And the scripture that they're using to support that is Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And it's the narrative of the serpent tempting Eve and Eve eating the fruit. And they, they saw that they were naked and uh, now they know good and evil. And the result, one of the results of that is God says, and your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you, which is where egalitarians get this idea that this patriarchal hierarchy is a result of the fall. Because after the fall, God says to Eve, he will rule over you as a result of this, this, you know, dis- this disobedience, this fall, as a result of the broken nature of the world. And so they go on to say, here's how the fall distorted relations between men and women. In the home, the hu- husband's loving, humble leadership tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. And in the church, sin inclines men toward a, toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> the flames <laughs> on the side of my face. Okay, so let me just so let me just interject here with a thought that has kind of been bubbling up and I don't know if I can hold it back anymore. Let it go, dear. <laughs> For all of my family's complications one of the things that my family was was deeply egalitarian and in my church community growing up there were about as many female ministers as there were male ministers in fact my mother is a female minister Mm -hmm. and my my sister is my big sister is a female minister her husband is also a minister so okay i grew up surrounded by strong women and women in positions of leadership and men submitted to them. And then in the positions where men were in leadership, women submitted to men because they were both in positions of leadership. So I, I think what what's dawning on me and what's getting to me is is how, you know, the anecdotal witness, the anecdotal witness of my own experience tells me that women are profoundly capable of leadership and wonderfully capable of leadership in unique ways, maybe different from men because mm-hmm. women can have different qualities and in single individuals all have different qualities as leaders. But my family and my church culture was a deeply functional one and very healthy. Mm -hmm. And so it it just staggers me every time I come across a statement like this that seems to put the cart before the horse in terms of evaluating reality. It seems to me that we should actually look at the evidence. It seems to me that we should actually look at the witness of experience and actually see if women make good leaders or not, rather than base reality, our understanding of reality in interpretation of scripture. It just strikes me as unbelievably backwards that there should be this, rather than just starting from scripture and 
and figuring out what reality should be like within that context and then applying it to reality, maybe there being an interplay between reality and scripture. I don't know. Are we back to the Wesleyan quadrilateral? I guess so. I think we are. I think we are. (laughs) Um, But I... It, it never ceases to frustrate me the way in which actual reality is not considered as a viable method for interpreting the world. You know, looking at actual evidence and experience and anecdotal experience and, and data and all of that, that that is not actually considered a viable method to understand the world. Well, the problem with that is that if if that's the case, then we are essentially imprisoned to religious authorities and growth and progress and actually understanding truth is impossible. Right. So a comment and then a question. To me, I go back to the whole thing where Jesus says, and I, I use this in many different aspects of, of Christianity, that a good tree can't produce bad fruit and vice versa. So if God truly ordained that women should not serve in positions of leadership, then the result or the fruit of that leadership would be disastrous. Presumably, Presumably. yes. Presumably. And which is anecdotally, as you said, completely Well, and just evidentially in general. As a matter of fact, I've heard many people in seminaries and stuff say that women tend to outperform the men quite substantially. Oh, I can see that because, you know, my my current rector at at my Episcopal church is a woman and she is just extraordinary and a mother and she approaches her church, she she approaches her congregation very much as a mother priest and brings a sense of warmth and a sense of community and connection and care that I don't find in most men, to be honest. If, if I'm going to throw in my lot with gender roles, I'm going to be honest and say that... And say, so if you want to talk about distinct gender roles, if you want to talk maybe about, the gender roles of women make them better. Maybe leaders. the gender role, if you want to talk... Exactly. <laughs> oh. If you want to talk about gender roles as distinct categories, which they may or may not be, but mm-hmm. if you want to talk about distinct gender roles, isn't the warm, caring, mothering, nurturing aspect of feminine maybe more appropriate within a church a ministerial setting, a ministerial right setting i mean let's just be real okay move on well I, I don't think i can because i think i think part of the point is remember all of those all of those rationale statements where they say essentially society is going to pot yes i think from from what i can gather and i may be i may be incorrect they're saying that female leadership in the church has in part led to the, the degeneration of culture that this, you know, we're already seeing the bad effects of female leadership in the church. And I'm like, has there been enough of it to even <laughs> well, see any also, bad effects? Also, oh. it, this this seems like an incredible level of confirmation bias. Mm. So I recently had Joseph Laycock on the show, and I've I've talked about him quite a bit in other episodes, but but he's really extraordinary. And one of the things that he writes about in his book is he he gives three reasons why imagination is so threatening to fundamentalism. Okay, so this is a bit of a tangent, but hear me out on this. You know, he he talks about why is it that fundamentalists are so terrified of books like Harry Potter and movies like Star Wars and games like Dungeons and Dragons and so on. And he says, well, it isn't exactly because they contain magic. That's their rationale. But he says it actually goes a bit deeper than that. 
The reason they are opposed to imagination is because it is in the interest of hegemonic systems to not imagine, to not imagine a world beyond the current system. And so it is in their interest to demonize anything outside of their traditions as contrary to God. And so people, and, and I see the exact same thing happening here in kind of a less obvious way in that all we're doing, all that they're doing is demonizing any challenge, any any capacity to imagine a world beyond this patriarchal system. Or a scriptural interpretation different from their exactly. own. Exactly. Yeah. If we dare to imagine, if we dare to imagine a different scriptural interpretation, if we dare say that, that scripture is even subject to interpretation because then that means that someone could come to a different interpretation than them, that's deeply threatening. And you know, it, it means that people have individual agency if they mm-hmm. can, if they can look at scripture and, and have the personal agency to interpret it. Well, that means that their entire tradition is under siege. Yeah, no. And well, my favorite, my, my other favorite is um, the Danver statement talks a lot about a woman's, quote, role within the home. And it's true. There are some household codes that say some very specific seemingly specific things about wives submitting to their husbands. I think it ignores it ignores the context of those verses. The very first thing that these household instructions say is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then goes on to call wives to submit and husbands to love. And, you know, these statements are placing so much emphasis on the role of women in the home. Here's the problem with that. Elsewhere in scripture, Paul specifically says that it's better for men and women to remain unmarried, that that is the higher calling. It is better to remain single. It is better to just not to do it. And so all of this emphasis on, oh my gosh, this is this is the woman's place and this is the man's place. Paul views all of that as, as honestly secondary. As secondary. As a secondary thing that single men and women make in some ways better servants for Christ than married men and women because they have fewer earthly concerns and can focus on, you know, the kingdom of God more. And so I I find that a really faulty basis to build some of this argument on if if it's second best, honestly. Basically, what I'm hearing is that if we ascribe to an absolute literalist interpretation, it's a house of cards. It Mm. has no structure. It cannot hold Mm -hmm. because the Bible itself is so huge and so complex, it will inevitably contradict itself. Well, and that's exactly what's happening. So that that was the family side of things. Now for the church side of things, you know, so they're saying the fall introduced distortions in the home and in the church. In other words, women in church leadership would be would be a fallen state of things. The problem is that in the Bible, again and again, uh, women are called to leadership within the for the people of God. You've got in Romans chapter sixteen, especially, Paul speaks to Phoebe, a deacon, and that's I mean that's what that is. A deacon is a teaching office within the church, and it was held by a woman named Phoebe, whom Paul commends. Uh, he speaks to Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple whom he calls his co-workers in Christ and says that he he went with them on several missionary journeys and he commends their teaching and their good works. Um, he commends Junia, 
an apostle among apostles, like outstanding among the apostles is what he calls her. And uh, the early church agreed. St. John of Chrysostom uh, confirmed this opinion of this female apostle Junia and says, you know, how, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even called an apostle. So there, this idea that female leadership in the church is going to lead to the end of the world, basically, uh, is contradict it's contradicted elsewhere in scripture in the new testament in the early church because there were women leaders all yeah. through the bible yeah. and if the world hasn't ended yet it's not going to i mean we can talk about the old testament too but we don't even have to go to the old testament to find these female leaders who were teaching and prophesying and you know and taking leadership roles or being given leadership roles by by the holy spirit by god within the early church they were there and uh and they were fabulous, quite frankly. Apparently, yes, they were. <laughs> Sorry, i i had to I had to go running around the house to restrain the cats because mm-hmm. they were raising hell. So, so <laughs> if hell raising kitties. So, if you heard lots of meows and and scuffling in the background while Danielle was talking, that was me mm-hmm. trying to restrain the cats. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, but this is the thing that gets me so. Uh, riled up about complementarians is that in the face of oh and this is probably the thing you know this goes back to your episode on right-wing conspiracy theories and 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 things like that is to me complementarianism is one big biblical conspiracy theory Mm. that that, i can't agree more that in the face of overwhelming biblical practical, theological, fill-in-the-blank evidence, they still hold to this model that just has no legs. It is it is the proverbial house built on the sand. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason for that is that fundamentalism in general uh, and this is another observation that Joseph Laycock makes. Fundamentalism has trouble understanding dis- different frames of meaning. Fundamentalism, by its nature, has to collapse all of these different culturally confined things and mythological constructs, archetypical constructs, historical constructs, and literally true constructs down into a single category. And it demands, fundamentalism demands, that everything be true in the same way. Fundamentalism just seems to have this very real problem with understanding that some things can be culturally confined. Mm -hmm. If it isn't literally true to us today, then it isn't true at all or has never been true before or is not meaningful or historically meaningful in any way. Which simply isn't true. Which simply is not true. The blinders, the blinders are astonishing because, well, let's take it this way. A lot of the more fundamental complementarian churches come from the reformed camp. The more, exactly. The more, the more (laughs) Calvinistic side of things. And if I'm not mistaken, because they love Calvin, they tend to also love Augustine. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Augustine had some very strong words about people who read a read the Genesis narrative literally. In fact, hmm. I believe he called them idiots. Hmm. Oh, my. That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> well, well, you know, this idea of a literal interpretation is actually 
quite new. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it came as a response to the Enlightenment. It came... It, it came as response to... To uh, the church feeling threatened. To the church yeah. feeling threatened by claims that Christianity was... That, that scripture was a myth. And they felt that if it was a myth, then therefore it had no meaning. And it, and it was really rooted in this idea that there is only one kind of true. And that one kind of true is literal, scientific, evidence-based truth. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the case, then every single thing in scripture must be true in the same way. And there's that collapse of meaning. meaning. There's that that collapse of states of meaning that everything has to be true in the exact same way. What what was historically confined has to be true for us now. And, and it's just this, this total collapse of a multiplicity of meanings and books and genres within scripture, which is really tragic. Well, and I mean, you would think that of all, this, all of the studies and things, you would think that science would be the hardest to come to different conclusions. And yet... You know, the science, the scientific truth of Newton has almost been completely debunked now that, you know, light can exist in more than one form. So things can. Yeah, the the Newtonian universe of absolutes is uh, he giving way to the Einsteinian universe of, you know, and exactly of the theory of relativity. So, yeah, even science is evolving and progressing, but it. But this view of the world that we're discussing is not allowed not allowed to evolve because that is a threat to its hegemonic tradition. I'm going to go ahead and say it's a threat to the existing power structures. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what it is. Absolutely. I mean, people don't want to lose their power. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of piecing together this puzzle you brought up at the beginning of the show. Why is it that these Protestants who don't have a pope are essentially being their own pope and making their Saying own proclamations that, for, you know, mm-hmm. that you must absolutely believe this and they're mm-hmm. villainizing anyone who believes differently well this is why it's because the 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 capacity to imagine another scriptural interpretation is a direct threat it's a direct undermining of their established order, of the established order of power. And yeah. that is why they're essentially acting as a pope. Yeah. So so fun fact of what I'm seeing on the screen is whenever Stephen and Danielle start talking very passionately, the sun kind of comes out and like illuminates Stephen's back. So we've got this kind of touch by an angel effect. Oh no. <laughs> and so it's like oh, no. and, and, and so it's like Oh, God agrees. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the lighting in here is weird. <laughs> That's, that is one way to see it. That is our show for this week. We're going to turn this into a two-parter. Stay tuned for next week as we go into part two of the Danvers Statement, breaking it down. For those of you who enjoy this conversation, thank you so much for hanging on thank with us. Thank you so much for putting up while, for, we, while we get geeky about Christianity. We get very geeky <laughs> about Christianity. We're really getting into the weeds here. You know, for those of you who find this boring and prefer all my shows about cults and, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) No hard feelings. No hard (laughs) feelings. This is geeky stuff. Mm -hmm. But I firmly believe that this is geeky stuff that matters. This Mm -hmm. is geeky stuff that does shape our culture. It shapes our policies. It it shapes the lives of our children and women and men in numerous ways. And that is why we really have to get into the weeds with it. So for those of you who are still listening, thank you so much. Also, I have to thank 
uh, Justin Caleb Bryant and Carson Green, my team, for keeping me sane and stable through this whole process of doing this show. If you love my work and want to support it, please go to sbradfordlong.com where you can read my numerous articles on faith and doubt and LGBT issues and all sorts of stuff. Also, if uh, you can do me a little favor. Just take three minutes out of your day and write a nice review for me on iTunes or wherever you listen. That would help so much and that would really help me reach a wider audience. All right, we'll see you next week.